This sermon, Do Not Test God, was preached by Tom Wilkins on Sunday, February 11th, 2024 at Sovereign Grace Church. Well, good morning, church. If I could have you stand with me, we will be reading God's Word this morning out of Judges. And if you are new to us, we do take this moment and we stand as just a physical way that we honor the truth of God's Word, the holiness of His Word, and the priority of His Word this morning. We're in the book of Judges, and we're in chapter 6, and I'll be reading verses 33 through 40. Let's read together. Now, all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east came together, and they crossed the Jordan and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. But the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon, and he sounded the trumpet, and the Ibizurites were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh, and they too were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers to Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, and they went up to meet him. Then Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand as you have said, behold, I'm laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on this fleece alone, and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so. He rose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece and wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl with water. Then Gideon said to God, let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just one more. Please let me test just once more with the fleece. Please let it be dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night. And it was dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground there was dew. You may be seated. Please join me in prayer. Lord, I pray for your church. I pray for us, all of us, together, that we would be enabled by the Spirit to hear and to see, hear with ears that get that message to our soul, that we would see. In other words, we would know, God. We would know what you're saying. Be merciful. Your Holy Spirit is present as we've gathered. Holy Spirit, move. And help us, help us hear your word. Jesus, I pray that our knowledge of you would grow even deeper. That it would result in more amazement of what you have done for us. And hearts that are more amazed would worship you, Jesus, all the more. That's my desire. Lord, restrain me to your will. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. 
St. Augustine has been referred to as one of our church fathers in the fourth century. That's a long time ago. Kids, if I lost you, the young ones in the room, if I lost you, as I said, fourth century, they're just like, oh, wow. Fourth, in the 300s, St. Augustine is a man who would confess later, one of the early church fathers, he would confess later that he struggled deeply with sin, and in particular, sexual sin and sensuality. And he tells of his conversion, his belief and faith in Christ this way. I was weeping in the most bitter contrition of my heart when I heard the voice of children from a neighboring house chanting, take up and read, take up and read. I could not remember ever hearing that. So checking the torrent of my tears, I rose. Interpreting it to be no other than a command from God to open the book and read the first chapter I should find. Eagerly then I turned to the place where I had laid the volume of the apostle. I seized, opened, and in silence read that section on which my eyes fell first. No further would I read, nor did I need to, for instantly it seemed as if the light of serenity infused into my heart and all the darkness of doubt vanished away. He uses that phrase, this darkness of doubt that he had before that light had been shown from God's word into his soul. A darkness of doubt in our relationship, it's actually a terrible enemy of our soul, is it not? Doubt is actually, we're going to discover in our text today, it's an enemy of God. In the darkness of St. Augustine's doubt, by the grace of God, he wept in bitter contrition of heart. Yet in our text today, this is not the case for Gideon. Our text this morning, we're going to continue to learn about this deliverer, Gideon. But we're going to be surprised as we discover how far we will go when we doubt God. And we'll also be surprised at God's amazing response. We will see, God willing, we will see when we will not trust in him, in our faithlessness and doubt and hesitancy. We actually test God, seek to negotiate with God, put God off, challenge him, and demand that he prove himself to us. So I've summarized our text today with this statement. Do not test God, but rather willingly trust him. Do not test God, but rather willingly trust him. Point number one this morning is made ready. If you're taking notes, it's made ready. Look now with me, and you're going to stay close to your scriptures throughout our time, God willing. Here in verses 33, we find in that narrative, you can glance through it as I summarize it, we find the surrounding enemies of Israel, the Midianites, the Amalekites, and the people of the east, meaning everyone around them. They all, again, because of what we've learned in the previous sections of our text, we're not just jumping into Gideon today. We've been learning about Gideon, learning about God's activity of bringing this young man up and making him a deliverer. 
And these armies of the Midianites have been coming in like locusts, a plague of locusts, the skies in that sense being darkened by how many would arrive on the land. They're a massive army, and now here we have the details. They've now come back in to do it again. They've returned thousands, taking over and encamping on their land. And they have begun their seasonal devouring of everything. Go back and read the previous sections. It'll bring you up to speed. But all of this is now going to end. Elsewhere in the scriptures, we'll find out that when the Lord in discipline allows the enemies of his people to gain strength, and his favor actually on the enemy, there will come a moment where their sins have reached their fullness is a phrase that's been used. And the Midianites have now reached that moment. Their sins have now reached their fullness in God's eyes. How that's worked out in God's sovereignty and providence as he uses them to discipline his people, I'll let you wrestle with that along with me. But it's true. And it's now coming to an end. These nations' sins have reached their fullness. The ravaging of the land and of God's people is over. We've been learning over the last uh, few sections that step by step, God has been preparing Gideon to lead his people, and in this case, on an offensive attack to destroy this enemy. The army encamped on the land is massive. It's about 130,000 strong. And if God himself does not do something, this will be a suicide mission for sure. Without God, Israel will utterly fail in a devastating defeat. And as we read on, this only seemingly will get worse. The people of Israel are starving that we've been reading about. They're barely getting by day by day, hiding both themselves and their food in the mountains. And now here are the hordes of those armies on the scene to devour them. What is coming for Gideon and his army will require the power of God. And so we have here in verse 33, but in particular 34, if you would look there with me. Let's read it again. But... I love the transition word in this case as it clues us in. The armies have encamped, but the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon, and he sounded a trumpet, and the Abizarites have called, were called out to follow him, and the surrounding nations that Gideon calls out to, they respond to Gideon. And this word that he is clothed, but the Lord, the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon. Let's consider that just for a second. It literally means in the original language to be dressed or robed. Another word, enveloped in the overpowering and overwhelming spirit of the Lord. Gideon has been made ready. He has been dressed in the overpowering, overwhelming spirit of Yahweh. And what's interesting about Gideon, this particular judge, is he's the only one that the Spirit is described as clothing him, as enveloping him in this overwhelming power of God, the Spirit. The Spirit had, had come on or came on Othniel and Jephthah that we'll be learning about. The Spirit of Yahweh began to trouble Samson, is the words that are used there. 
the Spirit of Yahweh rushed upon Samson. We'll discover that. For Gideon, he's completely enveloped by the overwhelming power of God. What we've just heard in the verse right before this, verse 33, is these armies are overwhelming and overpowering of Israel. We know from the previous text, there is nothing this nation of Israel can do to stop this. They're overwhelmed. But all that changes now. In an instant, God changes Gideon from a young man, and he is young, into a commander of men that others will follow. That's in this text. He immediately, when he's clothed, he blows the trumpet and the surrounding nations he's calling out to respond to this. Verses 34 and 35, he blows that trumpet. Verse 35, he calls out and they respond to this. This, by the way, for a man has to take fortitude and backbone. He knows what's coming. He can imagine what the war is going to be like. This is going to require God's help. And God has amazingly given him power to do this. All his people respond to this deliverer Gideon that's being raised up, and they go out to meet him. It literally is as if you could hear the metal clanging. The other pieces of war equipment rushing forward. All I've got in my context are tanks rolling. You can hear the jet engines fire up on the Bradley tanks. That's where they're at in this war. They are ready. Or are they? Let's look. Something happens between being made ready and now when we get to verse 36. They've went up to meet with him. Then, almost in the same breath, Gideon says to God, if, if, let's read together that verse, if you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. This key moment of battle readiness, we find Gideon, God's man, this mighty man of valor, which at first we knew, or at least we know, he is made ready, but something is up with Gideon. He himself is not ready. In other words, his heart is still faint. God's power has enveloped him. His courage has risen to an amazing level where he blows a horn, calls out the war, and yet we discover something is still present in this man. He is unsure and worse. This word if in verse 36 reveals significant doubt remains with Gideon. After all that God had revealed about himself in the previous verses, as God introduces himself to Gideon, uh, he has heard a prophet speak. An angel of the Lord has appeared to Gideon in person. And then suddenly he realizes this was actually the holy presence of God speaking to me. And he was a dead man for sure. Why would he not be ready? What is wrong with Gideon? Well, what we're finding out is his doubt runs deeper in his heart than we can imagine. Here we see actually Gideon's worst enemy is not 
this army that's before him, his worst enemy is himself. It is his doubt. As awful as this army is, they certainly are an enemy, but his worst enemy is himself. And it's not, and we're going to discover this more, but it's not just simple doubt. Like, I don't know about that. But you got to realize what's behind that statement. Like, I, I don't know about that. There's a lot behind that statement. Holding the hand of my son at a busy street, and he's just watching car after car after car go by. And I said, okay, son, we're ready. And he privately, I began to go out and like hold my arm. Like, ah, he's not quite ready. It's that Gideon's not ready is his will is opposed to God's will in this very moment. In this key moment, we discover that this hesitation, this distrust, this uncertainty, this doubt, the whole package of all of that, because it's certainly involved, they're sadly his opposition of God's will. So, we know what comes next then. He's aligned against God's will. Verse 37, he tests God and he tests God again. Let's look at that together. Let's read now 36 through 40. Then Gideon said to God, if you'll save Israel by my hand, as you have said, behold, I'm laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there's dew on the fleece alone and it's dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. Verse 38, and it was so. And he rose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece and he wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl of water. Now it's right here, right at the end of 38, it'd be like, so now you're ready. He's not. He's not satisfied. This is not enough for him. Then Gideon said to God, let not your anger, this is important, let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. Please let me test just once more with the fleece. He knows what he's doing is wrong. He knows that what he's doing rightly should provoke God. Let not your anger burn against me. Let me test you one more time with this fleece. Please let it now be dry on the fleece only. On all the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night. It was dry on the fleece only. And all the ground there was dew. This is the point in the text that we need to buckle up because here comes the sting we should never test God let me be more blunt do not put a fleece before God now maybe you're wondering wait 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 no this is what we do right I mean we lack assurance. We want to know what God is going to do. And so we put a fleece out for him. I mean, we've heard that even in the church. Someone's about to make a big decision. Like, well, we put a fleece out before the Lord. This is where in the text we've been completely misunderstanding what's happening with this fleece. 
There is a major problem with Gideon putting this fleece before God. For many, like I just mentioned, putting a fleece before God has become a way to, well, now a little more clearly to determine what God's will is. Isn't that what we want to know? What is God's will? Do you not ask yourself that question? Lord, what is your will in this case? And so, well, we'll use this fleece testing of the Lord to find out what his will is. We're looking for a sign. This has been referred to as a sign of the fleece. We're laying out this and we're saying, Lord, you need to give me a sign. This is you. That you're actually going to be with us in this battle. We're, we're ready. Are you going to do what you said you're going to do? And so it begins, it begins to take on that feel for it. But here's the false application of Gideon's fleece in the church. It has been believed that Gideon, what Gideon is doing here with the fleece, teaches us how to discover what God's will is. But what we are now learning and what we have been learning is just because it's in your Bible and the Lord doesn't immediately correct it, does not mean you and I are now called, oh, well, this is what we do. This is what we, this is what we can do. So be careful when you take a narrative and say, oh, well, this is what we should do. New Testament version of it. Okay, so let's gather up the snakes, let them bite us, and let that prove that God's power is with us. Strange, but real story. Now I've distracted you completely. You get to Google that one after the service. This matter of the fleece is serious. And for you and I, it goes like this. We're seeing this fleece or this testing of the Lord is what is your will, Lord? Therein is the error. But here's what we find ourselves doing. Should we make this move? Lord, if our house sells before the end of May, that will be a sign to us of what your will is. Should we move or should we not move? Look, if you have recently moved here, (laughs) and you've laid this fleece out, Tim said he will care for you after the service. (laughs) The fleece in this case is whether or not the house will sell. Is it going to be wet or is it going to be dry? Is it going to sell or is it not going to sell? Then we'll know what the Lord's will is. Be honest, it's as if there are only two options. And now we've put that on the Lord in our, I want to say fleecing him, but that's the wrong use of the word, putting the fleece before him. We're contemplating moving to Arizona and you begin to lay out the fleece and you begin to look for signs that might reveal, well, is going to Arizona your will, Lord? And we will do just like this text if, I get that needed raise in January, then I'll know that you're calling us to stay. Or on our way home, we saw three license plates that said Arizona while we were in Texas. (laughs) Isn't that a sign? We laugh, but I hope we're laughing nervously. This is us. This is us. I had a high school buddy actually say this. I didn't know this until after he became a believer. Talk about mercy in this case. He actually said this to the Lord. I would love to say he prayed this to the Lord, but he said this to the Lord. Lord, just let me have my senior year. And then I'll commit my life to you. Well, the reformers in the room are like, well, he has it all wrong for a lot of reasons. But is that 
not what we're doing. I, let, let me, Lord, if, if you'll just let me have this time, then I will do this. How about relationships on that uh, rom-com? Every one of them just about has this scene in it. But yet we spiritualize it, and then it becomes ours as well. Single men in this particular case. Guys, I'm sorry, I'm calling you out. Lord, if she's the one, then she'll turn around and glance back at me. And if she doesn't, well then, I know that's a sign that she's not the one. I'm submitting that if you turn around and see her looking back at you or not looking back at you, there could be something completely different on her mind. It could be, God, I hope I never see this guy again. <laughs> That's like her last glance. Uh, she's looking for a cop, maybe. How oh, don't we do this? But more seriously, when it comes to friendships and relationships where Involved in deep, unforgiving, unmerciful conflict. And we will, without maybe saying the words, we will say the words. If they come to me, then I'll forgive them. That if then is so wrong. But now, now without me trying to give you anecdotal evidence of how silly it is or how foolish it is, Consider how serious this is in our text. What's going on here with the fleece in this time frame? What's going on with Gideon, this man, where he is in Israel? What's going on in his culture? What this means, what he's doing, this must be what we look at. We have to see this. Gideon has been called up by God, but this young man who has grown up and is being grown up by the Lord also has a duality of worship of God involved. He, in a duality of worship, he worships the God of the Bible, wants to know and kind of knows a little bit about him, but he also is a Baal worshiper at the very same time. His family has Baal and Asherah pole on the property. They don't have to go far. This is, the if you cut them, they bleed duality. They bleed that syncretism, worshiping the God of Israel, Yahweh, and worshiping Baal and Asherah pole. And this has not been quite undone yet. The Canaanite Baal, <laughs> this part, when I discovered this about the text, I thought, Lord, then I'm never, never going to lay a fleece out for you. Well, we'll see how long that lasts. This Canaanite Baal is actually, remember Baal himself, himself, Baal itself is a pagan, the belief in the pagan worship of him is he's the storm god over in particular rain and dew. His, one of his daughters' name is dew. <laughs> if you're not nervous, this test reveals that there is the remaining effects of the family's idol worship still in Gideon as he lays this fleece out in front of God. That remaining effects of family idol worship. This is where you and I have to be honest with the nature of who we were. The Old Testament picture of the old man and the new man. Well, here for this idol worship 
and now being called out of the idol worship is as if these two had been bonded together and now like two pieces of cardboard bonded together now ripped apart and the pieces of each are left there. Pieces of each remain still there. Gideon obeyed God and had pulled down the altar of Baal. You and I could say, wait a minute, wait, 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 wait. He tore the Baal God down. But his test reveals in his heart, Baal's still up and at it. The lingering effects, this is where you and I will help us, the lingering effects of his sin, our sin, his worldview and his belief regarding this pagan God had not been fully dislodged from his heart. Let's go to a much smarter guy, Daniel Block, for this one. Daniel Block writes this. At the outset, we should recognize that Gideon's putting out the fleece does not represent an act of faith by which he seeks knowledge of God's will. He already knows it. He is to lead the Israelites to throw off the Midianite hordes. Instead, the fleece turns out to be an act of unbelief, an effort to get out of doing that will. The method adopted represents not only a clear violation of Yahweh's prohibition on testing him. Deuteronomy 6, by the way, it's not in this quote, but Deuteronomy 6.16, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Let's read on. But it's also an effort to get Yahweh to change his mind through a means that comes extremely close to the forms of pagan divination forbidden in Deuteronomy 18. And you're like, oh my gosh, this is what I've been doing when I've been testing the Lord? Be humble. Believe it. This is what pagan divination has. While it's not provided for you, he provides a little bit more. He says, in keeping with the common purpose of Mesopotamian divination, Gideon's aim is to reassure himself. He reassure himself of divine support for the venture against the Midianites. What an indictment on Gideon. He has a need for assurance that he wants God, like a pagan God, to meet for him. There's an old silly movie with Tom Hanks in it. Don't look it up and don't watch the movie because I do not remember the parental concerns in the movie. I just know there'll be less of the F word in the movie because of how old it is. And in this movie, you find out, that I think it's called Throw Joe into the Volcano. It's something like that. The, Joe versus the Volcano. Thank you. He watched it just recently. Um, it is a sense... It is a sense where we're always trying to get the gods to be happy with us. But this goes all the way back to the garden. We want to be God. And idolatry is, well, this God and that God and these God and that God and this God, well, they're actually here so that I get what I want. And so we seek to manipulate our pagan God in this way. Like many of the ancient diviners, Gideon is not confident in the verdict of a single sign. 
Like the ancient diviners, he needs reinforcement through a second performance of the test. Now, look with me at the text and look at now what he has grievously done to God, the creator of the universe. You actually did something amazing. Now, do it again. No wonder, he says in 39, let not your anger burn against me. This is not an act of faith on Gideon's part. Gideon has a clear knowledge of God's will. This was not either uh, just, uh, I want to feel better or stronger, or I need some reassurance here, Lord. Gideon did not want to go through with what God had called him to go through with. He tests God's resolve to carry out God's will. He required, think about that, in the very moment the tanks are rolling, they are ready to go after this war. He now is still looking for a way. Maybe I can get this God to change his mind. He requires God to prove himself. Should call you and I. Look, if you and I are getting this while we're on scene with Gideon and we see, oh my gosh, do you see what he's doing? We would be running back into the caves to hide from the holiness of God that should be poured out in that moment. He is seeking to negotiate with God in order to get what he wants. I can imagine if Gideon was alive today and in some areas of the world that would call themselves Christian, he would write a book and it would be entitled The Art of Negotiating with God. Yet the text reveals it's even worse. You're like, what could be worse? It reveals it's even worse. Now, with a wide-angle view, I don't know, if your reading glasses let you do this, then do this. Like, look back for a minute, kind of look over the couple of pages, and scan through the references to the Lord, all caps, the Lord. Over in verses 21 in chapter 6, the angel of the Lord, the Lord. Um, verse 22, the Lord. Verse 23, the Lord. All caps, that's Yahweh, 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 Yahweh. Keep going, Yahweh, Yahweh. Verse 34, this is our text today. But the spirit of Yahweh clothed Gideon. And now in this test section of 36 through 40, it's not Yahweh. It's another reference to God, Elohim. And understanding the way the nation of Israel would use the names of God it wasn't necessarily or intentional that they're saying, well, Yahweh is better than Elohim. But what Samuel is definitely revealing in the text is what Gideon is doing right now, he has a diminished view of Yahweh. In fact, what we now already know is he has a diminished view of God that is putting him on the track of being no different than Baal himself. Let's see if I can get him to change his mind. I'm here and I'm going to prove I'm going to prove you out, Lord. I'm going to prove you out, and I'm going to get you to do what I really want you to do. Will you call this whole thing off? The Lord remains less in his heart. He actually is questioning who God is. He approaches with a pagan challenge, seeking to negotiate and manipulate God, seeking to get God to move over to his side and his perspective. 
And look, the more serious version for us are in those very private moments of, Lord, I do not want them to die. I don't want him to die. Save him. Keep him alive. Keep him alive. How far am I willing to go to keep a grandson alive? How far am I willing to go to get that girl that I want? How far am I willing to go to get that career I so desperately have worked for? How far am I willing to go? Am I willing to go this far? Try to get God over to my perspective. Ask yourself this question. Have you, have I, been testing God? And recall that friendship relationship, that deep conflict, Lord. If they will come to me, then I will forgive them. Will you? What's been the case so far? Maybe they have, and you realize, I don't want to. Do you not see that your issue is with God first, no matter how great their sin is? Your your will in this case is set against God's will. His command is very clear. Forgive them. I, I have forgiven you. Forgive them. You know what you must do. Ask this question as well. Are you now discovering that the effects of your sin and your worldview, they still lurk in your heart? And this will often lead you to doubt and unwillingness to submit to God's will. Strive after your own will. Community group leaders, I want to serve you in this moment. Here's here's what you can take to your next community group. If you take this message, you take it into your next community group, here's your questions for the night. It's a statement and a question. In what area? That's actually two questions. Yeah, no, it's it's a question. I'm not serving you very well at all right now, am I? All right. Hey, community group leaders, here, let me serve you real quick with a question and then a statement. In what area am I or have I been trying to negotiate with God? And the statement is, we can help the group that night. Make for really exciting coffee with your spouse. <laughs> Lord, if you will fill in the blank. Lord, if you will, then I will. As a means to help them see, oh, this is actually at work in me all the time. But there is good news. It seemed like the news kept getting worse and worse and worse, but there is good news. And we see that in our text Let's go there together. Gideon's sinful hesitation, his resistance towards God is met by the patience of God twice. He ends that if you will do this as you said, Lord, in verse 36, and and now in verse 37, as you have said with the opening words in verse 38. Leave with these words ringing in your ears, ringing in the ears of your soul. Let these words, and it was so. And it should not have been. Now that we know how far and how dark his doubt was, God should in that moment have turned all of the armory around on Gideon. The Midianites, they've already reached their, the fulfillment. They're going to get my wrath. You, however, 
in light of what you're doing right now, you're going to get it too. That's not what he does. Verse 38, and it was so. Look down at verse 40. After the second test, knowingly proving God out, trying to win him over, and God did so that night. He did it again. He will continue to do it again and again for his people. He will meet their sin, which is darker than we can imagine. He will meet my sin. I was farther off than I could have ever imagined. He will meet that with his patience. Why would he do this, though? Why would God reveal his patience like this? Well, I'm submitting this. It's an implication of the text, but it's also, I believe, explicit in the text. The implication of the text, God shows his patience because that's what God does. He loves to reveal the richness of his grace. Sometimes we ask, why would God die for me, a sinner? Well, go read Ephesians chapter 2. He tells you why. Because I want to reveal the richness of my grace. And so he does it so for Gideon. Remember, he's teaching this young, not quite saved, if you could say it that way, young man. This, he's being saved Lingering effects of paganism. He has a diminished view of God and he is teaching Gideon. I'm not like your capricious gods. You don't have to manipulate me. My disposition towards you is I'm already leaning in on your behalf. I'll do what you said, Gideon, to reveal I'm patient with sinners like you. That's the implication of the text. But the explicit one is he also, it's because he's going to save them. And this is not going to stop God. In God's salvation, our resistance towards him will not stop him. Isn't that been your case? For years and years and years and years, I heard the good news of my need for the Savior. I desperately needed Christ he never gave up. He was on a mission of salvation for me and on that night as a junior in high school and seemingly after that day after day after day has come to save. Nothing's going to stop him. My doubt, my dark doubt, my unbelief as he sets his initiative on us, he takes us that we're dead, broken, unbelieving, unwilling, unrepentant sinners and saves us, and now does something amazing. We have looked at being made ready, but yet we're willing to test God. But now here in point three, we will see the one who was willing to trust God. We'll see the one who was willing to trust God as our only hope in trusting God. Gideon, deeply flawed deliverer, remains weak and even worse, willing to question the will of God. But the cross of Jesus will reveal that Jesus is actually the deliverer we needed all along. He's the 
deliverer that we so desperately need and have always needed, and now we have him. In his patience, he sends us the faithful deliverer who faithfully and willingly submits his will to God to save us. Please, we're going to go after, right now I'm about to hammer the same nail we always hammer. Don't fade out on me. Maybe we're discovering this was much worse than I thought. Oh, great. I cannot lay a fleece. I should not be testing God. But herein is our hope. The Holy Spirit is on our deliverer, Jesus. His enemies are on their way to the garden that night in Gethsemane. For our Savior, what is coming for Jesus is the will of the Father. And our sin of unbelief and disregard and seeking to manipulate and to disregard who the Lord is begins to crawl upon Jesus' body. Our unbelief crawls upon his body. Together in communion this morning, we held a remembrance, a symbol of his body that bore our sins. Our sins that could not quite let go of the pagan gods that we love. They crawl upon Jesus' body, and yet this is what he must do. Bearing the full fury of God's wrath towards sinner upon himself. It is overwhelming for Jesus, the man. But this was the plan and the will of his father. If you would turn to Luke 22 with me. Luke 22, verse 22. Jesus, that dark night in the garden, hours away from a horrific, torturous death on the cross, prays to his Father. He says, Father, if you are willing Remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Can you imagine that moment in the garden if actually it turns out Jesus was not that deliverer? It would have sounded very different. It would have been, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. And now here's a test so I can know for sure you've called me to do that. That's not what we get. If you're willing is met by nevertheless, not my will, your will be done. Jesus is our final deliverer, our great deliverer. He knows his father our Savior Jesus is willingly submitted to the will of the Father. No backpedaling, no negotiating, no demands for proof. 
Father, if you were willing, nevertheless, not my will, your will be done. And you and I, believing in Christ, would experience and know that, oh, I have been willing to never go through this my whole life. And the Lord himself, Jesus, was willing. Who's willing to give up his life for me. I would have never done it, but he did. You and I are called by his word to not test God. Do not test God, but willingly trust him. If I could have the band come up. The cross of our willing Savior. Doesn't that take on a more special ring this morning when you hear that, when you read that together? The cross of our willing Savior Jesus is the very place that unwilling sinners must go because it's there that unwilling sinners can find forgiveness. We cannot undo that willingness without God coming into us. He perfectly obeys for us. He perfectly bears the punishment for us. And something amazing is he gives his spirit now to us to now be able to be willing. Therefore, we repent of our sins and we submit our will to his will. You may be present this morning and this is where you are. You have known for a long time what you must do. You know what you must do. You must turn to God for forgiveness. You must turn to God for salvation. And there at the cross we find his mercy and forgiveness. There men and women and boys and girls are born again by the Spirit of God. There hesitating, doubting, unwilling sinners are humbled and made now willing, willing to trust Jesus more and more. If you would stand with me. For our sake. Luke twenty-two forty-two. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. At the beginning of the message, we, we heard St. Augustine's telling of his salvation. Here's words again regarding Jesus' words that we've just read. No further would I read, nor did I need to. For instantly at the end of the sentence, it seemed as if, a light of serenity infused into my heart and all the darkness of doubt vanished away. <laughs>